Open in your Bibles, if you would, to Luke 18. We're going to be looking at a very well-known parable this morning about the Pharisee and the tax collector in the temple praying. It is a joy to be here. I think every guest preacher starts by saying that. But for me, this is uh, very meaningful. I used to sit right back there for years. Uh, I met my wife here. I was trained for ministry here before I went to Westminster in Philadelphia. And uh, rest assured that the ministers that preach here, the ministers that pastor here, they have their influence in more places than just here in Omaha on a Sunday morning. The people that I minister to in Edgerton, Minnesota, tiny little town, 1,100 people, and the 300 people that go there on a Sunday morning are reaping the influence of the ministers that preach here and up in uh, Washington State and up in Montana, and out in western Nebraska. There are pockets of ministers, faithful men, who have been influenced by the preaching ministry here and by the ministers here. And so rest assured, um, you you are in very good hands on a Sunday morning. I was really excited to come here. Uh, My wife and I were saying this week, it's so exciting to come back to OBC and worship. And then I remembered, I was like, well, Pat's gone. I was like, well, this is so exciting to hear Pat preach. And that dawned on me that, no, I'm preaching. So... Hopefully it'll be half as good as Pastor Pat. So, Luke 18, we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 14. From Luke 18. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I... Thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. When I was in elementary school, third or fourth grade, I don't remember which one, our teacher assigned a poetry contest, and I was back of the pack when it came to poetry interest, okay? I was back of the line. But uh, they said that we had to pick a poem, and then we were going to have to memorize it and then perform the poem for our classmates, So I picked the shortest, simplest, least abstract poem that I could find. And I chose Robert Frost and his poem, The Road Not Taken. You've probably heard of it or you've even heard it alluded to in other areas of life. I likely did not do very well in this performance of the poem. I likely was very nervous. But the basic idea of the poem is pretty clear. And I think it's summed up in the last line here. It says, Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. I think in much the same way, the parable that Jesus tells in Luke 18 is very similar to that idea, that there are two paths, so to speak. You can't take both of them at the same time, and they don't lead to the same place. You have to pick, and he lays out these paths here in this parable, and and each path is, is centered upon a person, the Pharisee, and then the tax collector. Those are your two paths. You can't take them both at the same time. They don't lead to the same place. And they're not both good in and of themselves. 
So this parable, as we're going to see, it presents a very deliberate, very stark contrast between these two people, the Pharisee and the tax collector. Now, this is a very familiar parable to us. It's a very familiar passage of Scripture to us. So sometimes we we can approach a text like this and we just kind of sit back, ho-hum, I know how this is going to go. But if you were listening to Jesus tell this parable the first time he told it, you would not have been sitting back ho-hum thinking, oh, the tax collector's going to get the goods here. You would have been sitting back and you would have thought, this is almost boring. Pharisee and the tax collector, they're going into the temple to pray. I know, I know how this ends. Okay? I get how this ends. There couldn't be two different people that Jesus portrays together here. And they are very, very different. So what we're going to see this morning from Luke 18 is that we're going to see a, we're going to see a Pharisee who is in need of praise. And we're going to see a tax collector who is in need of mercy. So that's what we're going to see. So notice the background for this parable. He says it right there in verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. That's what Luke wants us to have in our minds that they trusted in themselves, that they looked inward and all they saw were good things. They saw righteous things. They saw upright things. They looked inside of themselves and they said, I've got it good. I've got it good. I'm good. I'm good to go before the throne of God above. I'm set because of what I myself have. That's what he means by they trusted in themselves that they were righteous. But then also notice that it comes with a horizontal implication. You see that? They trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt or scorn or shame. They looked down on other people simply because of what they thought about themselves. They looked down on others with eyes of pride. They imagined that they themselves were vastly superior to everybody else because of how they kept the law. How would you understand that salvation is never just a private affair, just between you and the Lord? It has implications for your kids. It has implications for the people that you work with Monday through Friday. It has implications for how you interact with your neighbors across the fence while you're raking leaves in the fall. It always comes with implications. If you think righteousness is coming through what you do in and of yourself, you will find ways to look down on others who can't keep up with you, so to speak. It has implications. It has horizontal implications for how you treat your kids, your neighbors, your husband or your wife, your co-workers. It all ties together. So he says that he's preaching to those, he's talking to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And that's exemplified in this Pharisee. But it's kind of ironic because you can't actually be righteous in and of yourself and look down on others with contempt. If Jesus summarizes the law in Matthew 22 and he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. The neighbor as yourself here is misfiring. It's not connecting. So they're looking in themselves that they are righteous and yet they're blinded to the fact that that they're looking down on others with contempt, which by definition nullifies their own righteousness. And that's what sin does. Sin is deceitful. It's blinding. 
We, we're so good. You and I are so good at seeing sins in other people. We can spot it from a mile away. And yet when your spouse comes to you and complains about how you were talking to them, or when your kids, parents, you know this happens, your kids catch you in something. You've said one thing and then they catch you doing the very thing that you said not to do. Sin is, sin is blinding. It's deceptive. We can see it in others so easily. So easily. And yet, when we look at ourselves, it's hard to spot. And it's going on here. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they still looked down on others with contempt, nullifying their righteousness. So, who are the Pharisees? Let's give some background on these chaps. So, Pharisees. They're the most influential Jewish, Jewish sect at the time. They resided primarily in Jerusalem. And these Pharisees, they would have shaped the religious outlook of their day. They, they shaped the religious life of the ordinary Jewish person. They did this through their, their teaching and their interpretation of the law. I thought last night something comparable or analogous to these Pharisees. If you had a question about Scripture you would go to the Pharisees. They were kind of like the Google of the first century. That if you had a question about your Bible, if you had a question about the law, you would go to the Pharisees and they would, they would give you an answer. They would give you an interpretation. They were the Google of the first century, so to speak. They were especially concerned with keeping a righteousness before God. Which is a, that's a good thing. That's a good desire. There's nothing wrong with that desire. That to be godly, to be upright, to be righteous. There's nothing intrinsically wrong with that. But they did it in such a way that they looked down on others and that it was all inwardly focused. So the important things are all mentioned in our text. Tithing, fasting. One of their constant complaints about Jesus is, he, is they say to Jesus, why do you eat with sinners and tax collectors? As in, guilty by association. That's how they thought. That even to eat with such people would somehow stain yourself. So they were extremely paranoid, you could almost say, about keeping up their own righteousness, doing things the right way, interpreting the Scriptures the right way, putting all these traditions on top of the Word. And the Pharisees grumbled and they scoffed at Jesus when, when He sat with sinners and tax collectors, when He went into their house to eat with them. So notice the posture of this Pharisee. Let's get into our text here. Two men went up into the temple to pray. Verse 10, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Verse 11, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. So he's standing. Nothing, nothing wrong with standing while he's praying. He's in the temple. That would have been common. But I think when you contrast it with the tax collector later on who says it's, he's standing far off, I think we're supposed to hear in there this Pharisee is standing somewhere where he can be noticed big time. He is standing in a place where people are going to notice what he's doing. He's also going to stand in a place where people can likely hear what he's saying. He's standing in a place of attention. And he prays about himself. Now, please notice that in that list, there's nothing really wrong with that list. He prays that he's not like the other men who are adulterers or extortioners or thieves. That, that's okay. If, if you were to come to Pastor Pat and you were to say, I'm not an adulterer or I'm not a murderer, 
he wouldn't say, that's too bad. He would say, that's fantastic. That's good news. That's great. I'm so glad that that's true. But how is this being used here? It's not just being used as fruit of a, of a life that's bubbling over with love for God and the glory of Christ. No, these things are being used as a basis for that. That, that he is using these things as a foundation on which to stand to appear before God as righteous and as just. These are, this is his resume, so to speak. That, that he's not like other men. So his law-keeping becomes the basis for standing before God. And he gives thanks that he's not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, like this tax collector over here. And again, we see, we see something that's misfiring here, something that's not quite connecting the dots. He's a Pharisee. He's an expert in the law, supposedly. He knows his Bible better than most people. And yet, for some reason... When Paul talks about in Romans 7 that the law exposes our sin, it sheds light on our sin and and reveals it for what it is. This Pharisee, who's supposed to be an expert in that very law, is somehow missing it. That his his law-keeping is blameless and untouchable. And it's so easy for us to sit back and say, that silly Pharisee, how can he not see this? How can we not see it? We're pretty good at not seeing it. We, we have a tendency to cover up our own sins and shortcomings and, and we find the good things and we kind of lift up the good things on a pedestal and we say, I'm so thankful that I'm not like other people and on that basis, God should give me salvation. And we see it in the Pharisee and I think if we're honest, we, we see it in our own hearts. Probably in this, even this past week, we've seen it. So the law, by the Spirit, is meant to expose our sins. If you've ever had the experience, I know I have many occasions when I've washed my car. I've taken it through the drive through car wash, or I've washed it myself on the driveway, and I think it's spotless. I think it's pretty good. And I look at the windshield, and it's awesome. Not a spot on it. And then you drive into the sunset, and the sun hits it directly from the front. And every blemish, every smear, every spot that you thought was perfect, that you thought you had gotten rid of, comes exposed. It becomes bigger than you can even imagine. And you're like, how did I miss that? You, you didn't miss it. The sun exposed what was already there. And that's what the law does. The law does not create sin in me that wasn't there in the first place. It exposes and stirs up the sin so that I might confess it, not so that I might suppress it and cover it up. That's what it's meant to do. And so there's a fundamental disconnect here. The Pharisee, he should have seen that. He should have seen that the law is doing its job when he realizes his own sinfulness. So he keeps going. So that's his, that's his resume in a sense of like negative. I'm not like this. Well, what is he doing? You see it there in verse 12. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now, there was only one fast that was required annually by the Israelite people, and that was on the Day of Atonement. So it's one fast a year, and it's on a very specific day, like we read about in Leviticus 16. So even if this is a private fast, not connected with any Jewish ceremonies, it's way above and beyond anything that was required. Twice a week, that's 104 fasts a year. 
compared to one that was required. So this is above and beyond. And he's, he's definitely using this as a basis by which God should judge him. Look at my fasting. I do it so often. I do it so well. Aren't you pleased? That's the idea here. And then he says he gives a tenth or a tithe of all that he gets. And that parallels earlier with Luke where Jesus is talking about the outside of the cup is clean for these Pharisees. There's no denying that. And yet the inside, Jesus said, is, is wicked. They've, they've, it's a classic case in missing the point. That their, that their internal righteousness, their internal spirit is disconnected from how they are portraying themselves. So what's the summary statement on this Pharisee? Well, you see it in verse 14. Rather, or the end of verse 14. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. That's the Pharisee. Everyone who exalts himself. That's what the Pharisee is doing in this text. He is exalting himself. And Jesus says that that mindset will be humbled. That mindset will be humbled. I I think the crowds would have sat up at that point. Towards the end, when Jesus says, this man, the tax collector, went to his home rather, justified rather than the other, rather than the Pharisee. I think if before, if the crowds were kind of ho-hum about this, of knowing how this is going to turn out, I think the most staggering word in this whole text is the word rather. I think they certainly would have been okay if Jesus said, well, this, this man went home justified as well as the Pharisee. Because you would have said, well, God is merciful and gracious and compassionate. Of course, he's going to forgive and be merciful to the tax collector, but he's also going to recognize the righteousness of the Pharisee. Jesus says, no, this man went home justified rather than the Pharisee. There's something massive going on here. So what did he do, this Pharisee? He elevated his own perceived righteousness and he construed his relationship with God primarily in categories of self-advancement. That I, I pick myself up by my bootstraps, so to speak, and I get it together. That's his constant temptation and that's our temptation too. That we don't, we're, we're constantly tempted that, no, we don't need redemption. We, we're constantly tempted to think we need, we need recognition for what we're already doing. And Jesus says, no, no, no. You, you need redemption, not recognition for your own righteousness. Sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes when I turn on the TV, I catch those courtroom dramas during the day. They're fabulous if you ever want to entertain yourself for about half an hour. Uh, at the end of these courtroom dramas, they usually have a part where they interview the people that were just in court. And they'll, they'll ask the person in the ca- on the camera and they'll say, how do you think it went in there? And they'll give their answer and they'll tell how they think it went in the courtroom. I think something could be said of that same thing here, of a temple exit interview, so to speak. And someone is standing outside waiting for the Pharisee to come out and says to the Pharisee on camera, how do you think it went in there? How do you think you did? And I think this is what the Pharisee would say. He would say, I have obeyed the law. I've done what the law requires and I've avoided what the law forbids. On this basis, I am right before God. These others in there, particularly the tax collector, they cannot claim to have the righteousness that I do. That's, I think, what his exit interview, so to speak, would sound like. 
So we see a Pharisee in need of praise. And then we're going to see a tax collector who's desperately in need of mercy. And that's what we see the next. But the tax collector, verse 13, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So who are these tax collectors? Well, they collected tolls and tariffs and customs. Basically, they collected money. We know that from Zacchaeus, probably the most well-known example of a tax collector in Luke's Gospel that we're going to see in Luke 19, if you would flip over. That, that's a perfect example of a tax collector. He, he ends his section with Jesus by saying, if I have defrauded anyone, i.e., I've defrauded a lot of people. That's what tax collectors did. They were employed by the Roman government. They were Jewish people who were employed by the Roman government to tax their fellow citizens, their fellow Israelites, so to speak. And it wasn't just, okay, you owe this much, according to the government, I'll collect that much. No, they went above and beyond. Anything that they could collect beyond the required amount went right into their pocket. One historian even says that an honest tax collector, by principle, is a starving tax collector. An honest tax collector by principle is a starving tax collector, he says. And Zacchaeus is a well-known illustration of that. So thus, even before we know a single word about any of these chaps here, the, the Pharisee or the tax collector, even before we know a single word out of their mouth, we know that there is a sharp contrast here that Jesus is setting up. And it's that contrast that makes all the difference. That Jesus is setting this tax collector and the Pharisee over against one another. One is held in high regard among the Jewish people, and the other is despised simply for what he does for work. One is keen on making his righteousness manifest for all the people to see, and the other is assumed to be unrighteous simply for what he does as a tax collector, which is probably true. It's not that Jesus is covering this up and saying, well, then the tax collector, you've got it all wrong. He's actually not that unrighteous. No, we... We are right in thinking that this tax collector is unrighteous in what he does. That's the point of the parable. He's set against this Pharisee who has perceived righteousness. And Jesus wants us to see that. So notice the posture of this Pharisee or this tax collector. He stands far off. He would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. This is a contrite heart that we see in Psalm 51 of David's prayer when he's confronted by the prophet Nathan for his adultery with Bathsheba. He uses some of this same language. Have mercy on me, O God, a sinner. That's this tax collector's driving force. That's what he's all about. He needs mercy. He doesn't need recognition from God for his righteousness. He needs mercy and he needs grace from God in Christ because of who he is. And he beats his breast. He shows intense sorrow and turmoil. So God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's his one plea. And that's your one plea. That's, if your kids aren't believers, that's their one plea that you, that you teach them, that you, that you send them to bed not thinking that they've got it all together in every facet of their life. You, you say, you need to recognize your need for Christ. Some of us are intimidated by talking to co-workers about talking to our neighbors. Maybe you've just come off of a family holiday for Christmas and, and it's been tense. 
Family get-togethers have a tendency to do that sometimes. When, when you're a believer, you trust in Christ and your parents don't or your brothers and sisters don't. What do you, where do you go with that? You need to get them to say this. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Well, how do you get there? You don't just slam them with the Bible and say, figure it out. No, you, you help. You try, to, you try to nurture them and say, Let, let's talk about what this means. What does it mean to be sinful? What does it mean that God is holy? How, how do those two possibly dovetail? How can God be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ? Help people think through those kinds of things. So this, this tax collector knows that salvation belongs to the Lord. He's in the temple. It's very fitting. How ironic is it that the Pharisee is in the temple? He's in the place of worship. He's in the place where people would bring sacrificial offerings. And yet it's all turned inwards on himself. And yet the, the tax collector is here in the temple also. And he's in God's place. And he recognizes that, yes, salvation belongs to the Lord alone. And he recognizes it. So he pleads for mercy. This is a man who has come to understand what sin is. And it's a front and it's a personal rebellion against God. If and when you ever get pulled over by a police officer for speeding... If you say, if the police officer says, you have to pay that money directly to me, you would cry foul. Because that's not, that's not fair. Because I'm not sinning against a police officer, so to speak. He's upholding an external law that he is paid to uphold. It's not intrinsic in himself as though he's upholding a law that he himself created. No, you're sinning against the law and he's there to enforce it. But that's not how it is with God. God's law is not some external thing that He just kind of lifts up and uses for His own purpose. No, your sin is against His character because the law is an expression of His character. So we, we've sinned against God by breaking His law. So we've rebelled against Him and we need salvation from His hand. So this man went home justified. He went home declared righteous or counted or reckoned as righteous. Not for anything he himself did or brought to the table. Actually, it's, it's almost completely the opposite. He didn't bring anything to the table. The only thing that he brought to the table was his unrighteousness. So, so how is it then that Jesus can just say to these listening crowds, that man went home justified rather than the other? And it's because of Christ. It's because of the work of Christ yet to come. He's in, the, he's in the temple. You know what he would have been seeing in the temple? He would have been seeing people bringing lambs, goats, bulls to be sacrificed. It would have been bloody. It would have been loud. People bringing sacrifices to slay on the altar, to atone for their sins. And he would have been looking around and he would have known, I can't keep doing this every year. I can't keep bringing the same sacrifices every year because they're a constant reminder of my sin. There must be something that would atone for my sin that I don't have to repeat. That someone else could do it for me in my place. And it's the one telling the parable. It's Christ Himself who's the spotless Lamb 
who was slain. He received mercy and grace like a little child, which is what Luke goes on to say next, that the children are brought to Christ. It's a picture of how this tax collector is receiving what he has no claims on for himself. It's a picture of receiving grace and mercy. If someone were to come to your door promising to get rid of all your credit card debt and then said that all you need to do is just kind of write your social security number down on this clipboard here and I'll take care of it. We are naturally suspicious of phrases that sound like this. All you need to do. That makes us suspicious. That sounds like fine print. That sounds like there's an asterisk somewhere that's going to catch us later. We don't, we don't feel comfortable with this all I need to do kind of language. And yet that's the gospel. The gospel is not pick up yourself up off the ground and figure it out. The gospel is look at what Christ has done for you in His life, death, and resurrection. You don't need to maintain it. You don't need to add to it. It's a gift that's given to you when you receive it by faith. It's not something you need to maintain or figure out how to make it work. Some of you kids, maybe those of you under the age of 12, maybe you recently got a Christmas gift and your parents bumped themselves on the forehead because they forgot that the electronic that they gave you needs batteries. And the package says right on it, batteries not included. And it's a scheme. It's a scam. And we've been in that place where you open it on Christmas morning and then you realize that all the stores are closed and you realize you have no batteries in the house. And it says batteries not included. So you still have to contribute something just to get the gift to work how it's supposed to. That's not how, that's not how the gospel works. The gospel does not come with any kind of slogan where it says, all you need to do is get batteries to make this thing work. It works right out of the package. When you receive it by faith, when you trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, it works immediately. It doesn't require batteries or maintenance. So what's the summary statement on this tax collector? He humbles himself and he will be exalted. He realizes who he is. He realizes who he is before God. He realizes who he is before others. And he humbles himself and he will be exalted. Now, biblical humility sounds like, well, it's, it's supposed to be, I'm supposed to be shy or kind of introverted or kind of low talker, so to speak. No, biblical humility is just realizing who you are outside of Christ and coming to Christ himself for redemption. So, what are our takeaways this morning from this? I think there's a couple here. First, I would say this. Horizontal justification is a killer. It's just a killer. It's, it's a destroyer of yourself. Horizontal justification. When, when you look around and you try to find people who are worse off than you and you feel better, but what happens when you see people that are better than you? What happens when your coworker is actually a little bit more upright than you might be on a certain day? Or what happens when your neighbor or your unbelieving spouse, or your unbelieving family might actually have it more together than you do. It's just a pendulum swing between pride and despair, and it's a killer. It's a killer. It sounds good. It feels good in the moment. We all know that's true. We all know that it feels good in the moment. When I've sinned, 
when I've fallen short on some level, I can so easily find people that I think that I'm better than. And it feels somewhat good. But it's not lasting. It's not the solution that you need. It's like, it's like being outside on a really cold day and all you do is lick your lips because they're dry. And you think, it, you think that's the solution. You, you think that's going to cut it. And it actually is making it worse. You need chapstick. It feels good. It seems like it's the right solution. And it's not. So horizontal justification is a, is a killer for your soul. It's a killer for your marriage and it's a killer for your parenting. So the main point of this passage is, is not robotic separation or imitation. Okay? That's, it's super easy to look at this text and say, I, I got it. I know what I need to do. I just need to robotically avoid sounding and looking like that Pharisee. And I need to robotically sound and look like that tax collector. And, and we miss Jesus. We miss Christ. He's the third character. He's the one who was truly humbled and was truly exalted, who humbled himself even to death on a cross and was raised to walk in newness of life. It's an unexpected Savior. And so we have unexpected salvation. If you look at Luke 18... Just look at the headings. I assume your Bible has headings. Look at how unexpected all this stuff is. Luke 18, 9-14, what we just looked at, the Pharisee and the tax collector. What would you, what would you suggest, or what, what would we do and come up with if we all got together and we said, how does the gospel work? And we would come away and we would say, it's not like this. We would, we would come up with a different scheme. We would come up with a different plan. It's not, it, it's not going to sound like this. So instead of the perceived righteousness, it's the Pharisee who goes home justified. Instead of the powerful and mighty people in the, in the Roman government and in the Jewish citizenship coming to Jesus, who comes to him? Little children, 15 through 17. Unexpected, again. Then 18 through 30, the rich young ruler. It's not a matter of wealth and inheritance and money. It's not that, that's not going to cut it. And he goes home sad because he has great possessions. All of these things are unexpected outcomes. We would never plan it that way. But God has planned it that way. That it's the, the weak and the lowly, those who have nothing to boast in and of themselves, who, who come to Christ and seek and find mercy. And the most unexpected thing of all, Luke eighteen thirty one through 34 we don't have a Savior who, who parades into Jerusalem on a great white victorious horse surrounded by throngs of worshipers. And He's going to take over the government. And he's going to restore everything. No, we, we worship a Savior in 32 who's going to be delivered to the Gentiles. He's going to be mocked. He's going to be shamefully treated and spit upon. He's going to be flogged. And they're going to kill Him. They're going to kill Him. But on the third day He will rise. We have an unexpected Savior. That is so unexpected. That is so unanticipated, so to speak. But that's the Savior we worship. So we have an unexpected Savior who, who is crucified and then raised. And we have an unexpected salvation that even though we're not righteous in and of ourselves, even though we might not be powerful in this world, we are saved through the perfect person and work of Christ. 
who humbled Himself and was subsequently exalted and glorified. That's the Savior that we worship. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that it is clear. We thank You that it is authoritative and sufficient for us. We pray that You would press it home into our hearts. We are tempted in all sorts of ways throughout the week. We are tempted as co-workers and neighbors and parents and spouses and kids. We are tempted to look within ourselves for the basis of standing before You righteous. And we're not going to find it. We can look all day and all night and we're not going to find it. And even if we found a trace of righteousness that might pardon our sins, it's gone by the afternoon. It's gone by the next day. So we pray, Lord, that we would trust in Christ, His finished, perfect work for us. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen.